Are you self-employed and looking to get a home loan? Do you want to buy a property with your super fund? Or has your mortgage application been knocked back and you need a solution? At Better Mortgage Management, we specialise in solutions for home and investment loan borrowers. With over 50 loan products and 23 years lending experience, we have the flexibility and expertise to help you achieve your property dreams. Call us at 1300 857 275 to discuss how we can help you. This podcast is brought to you by Better Mortgage Management. You're tuning into Cancer Culture, a podcast all about cancer. My name is Jackie Cowan and I'm an ex-cancer patient and also your host. I'm on a mission to let cancer patients and people affected by cancer know that they are not alone. Throughout this episode and the course of the podcast, you'll hear stories from people who are currently enduring cancer, lost loved ones to cancer, or whose lives have permanently been scarred and changed by cancer. This podcast can be both insightful and sad, so please strap in as it's one for the brave. I'm most definitely not a medical practitioner, however, a survivor of an illness who wishes to bring individuals together through hope, genuine human interaction and storytelling. Okay, so today we are joined by a dear old friend. I can say that, right? You can. You I've can known indeed. you for over 12, four, wait, how long? Grade 7, Beth? Yeah, so we would have been 12, going on 13, which is pretty crazy because we're turning 26 this year. Actually, you, you, were, tw- you were 12 going, you were 12 going on 35. Yeah, let's 12. be honest. <laughs> There's no going on to 13. Oh yeah, Jackie. we are 27 this year. No going on 13. Also, I just had to have a serious think then. I was like, oh my god, are we 27 or are we 23? <laughs> Babe, in five minutes you'll be my age. <laughs> And we'll blink. Well, today we're here to discuss a pretty insane journey, something super, super unique, and that is your life, Karen, and your experience with cancer. So thank you for coming coming on down, down the road, pedaling down the road. Thank you for twisting my arm. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so today we'll start off with cancer and how it has affected your life and what that has looked like spending many days in your shoes. But can you tell your audience slash our audience a little bit about yourself, your upbringing, and who you were before cancer? Well, Jackie, thanks for the intro. Open disclosure, there's actually nothing very special about me. I'm just a good old fashioned bogan who grew up in a very loving family. Totally boring. I squeezed in every bit of hyper color action out of the 80s. While I studied at uni and then I travelled with girlfriends, fell in love, got married, had babies and worked all the way along. Cool. What did you study? Speech pathology. Hmm. There you go. And so did you work within speech pathology? Pathology, sorry. Oh my God, I've done everything. <laughs> I've mm-hmm. done everything from ma- making birthday cakes in a hot bread kitchen. I was a secretary for an Argentinian food importer. Wow. That wasn't fun. People used to send bits of metal from their canned corned beef in the mail along with their dentist bill and I worked as a speech pathologist in lots of children's hospitals and most recently my reinvention is as a practice manager for a large medical practice. Okay and how's that going? Love it. Cool. You've had many 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 different careers. Lots of reinventions a bit like you. So Karen what was your life like before cancer? Can you dive into that? Was it any different Were you a different person? Very, because 
I lived in that lovely honeymoon period of just blissful ignorance where we all took our health for granted. And it was a wonderful time in my life where my surprise baby Harry had finally grown up enough to go to school, so he was in prep. And he joined the two possibly naughtiest girls on the planet, his sisters, at school. And so I was happily back at work. My husband was busy. He's a neurosurgeon, so he was getting his career on track and I was getting my career on track. We'd just bought a house, kind of really in the middle stages of planning happily ever after. Easy. And then you were hit by some sort of a bombshell? Totally, Mm -hmm. totally. And what was that? So I've been diagnosed with breast cancer, like many, many women. And unfortunately, my breast cancer is metastatic, which means it spread to my spine and my brain. Mm -hmm. And so what year was this? That was 2007. Okay, 2007. Wow. Mm -hmm. What did that diagnosis look like to you at that point in time? As you mentioned, you you were building your family home and lifestyle and beginning that journey. What did that look like for you? Well, it was really interesting because my first diagnosis was early breast cancer. So as much as that was a little deviation from my perfectly orchestrated life, it was a statistically manageable curveball. So I'm not sure what the odds are these days, but I I think there's a little, it's a little like a 97% life expectancy to five years. So it was a curveball, but it was manageable because at that stage, the, the, the treatment was fairly routine. It was a, a combo of chemotherapy and radiation treatment, and which we navigated quite well. And then after the treatment, my oncologist at the time said to me, let's just do a scan and we'll call it surveillance. And you know what that, this is like, Jackie. You know, cancer patients absolutely dread that word surveillance. Yeah. And unfortunately for me, the surveillance meant that they found another tumour that had spread to my spinal cord. So that was different because the, the odds of survival were slightly different, different statistics. You know, my easily manageable early breast cancer diagnosis had then morphed into metastatic disease. Different odds, different treatment, different psychology. And so at that stage, I had to have a vertebrectomy, which basically was that one of my vertebrae was removed. Mm-hmm. It's a 10 hour operation replaced by a titanium cage. A few ribs were broken and mushed up to sort of for bony union in that cage. And then I had a fusion two levels up above the cage and then a fusion two levels down. Lots and lots of treatment, six months of rehab, three weeks in hospital, a week in intensive care. And that little hit that comes with having metastatic disease. So I navigated that because you don't have a choice. You're just, you're just on that roller coaster ride. And we got to the point where I was really well, physically fit, recovered from all the treatment. And my oncologist had said to me, oh, there's a new machine called a PET scan. And he said, I want you to be the first person to have a PET scan. Let's just call it surveillance. Mm. And so I was happy to comply with whatever he want, wanted me to do. And unfortunately for me, the scan showed up a brain tumour 
And so I'd gone from the statistically manageable early breast cancer to the slightly more daunting metastatic breast cancer diagnosis to then having had a brain tumour. And I guess when you work in a medical industry, you do understand that once that little suckers cross that blood brain barrier, you know, all bets are kind of off. And so that was a pretty challenging time because I'm probably racing ahead, but I'm an information gatherer and I had really naughty children to raise and I needed to know how long I had. And I said to my oncologist, so what does that mean? How long have I got? And he said to me, I'll give you 12 months. So that was a really, really challenging time in our life. And at that stage, I'd had, I was having some dreadful treatment. I was having brain chemotherapy. I was having stereotactic brain radiation therapy. I was having trial drugs. I was frightened. And uh, we were all in free fall at the time. It happened within two years, Jackie. And so that was quite the roller coaster, to be honest. And in terms of total treatment, I mean, I, up to now I've had about 15 operations, gazillions of chemotherapy treatments, immune therapy, like I said before, trial drugs, lots of rehab, lots of radiation treatment. That's still ongoing, so I have treatment every three weeks. Mm -hmm. Because to race forward, I've outlived, obviously, my prognosis. <laughs> Someone's got to do it. Someone's got to do it. Yep. And so now, in fact, the other day, my oncologist said to me, the statistical probability of your survival, Karen, is zero, which is a little overwhelming. And so he just calls me his little lab rat because they really quite don't know what to do with me. So I'm just blazing the pathway and just having some immune therapy every three weeks until I don't have immune therapy every three weeks. Cancer ruins lives and naturally flips worlds upside down that being your parents your children your family your friends your mates everything what was that time like for you during that period during those two years what did it look like being a mum well I'm not going to sugarcoat it Jackie it was crap it was absolute crap I mean my children were young enough to be quite naive about you know, the, the immortality of their parents. One of my daughters was worried that she would catch cancer from me, so she didn't want to touch me. My son couldn't understand why his mummy couldn't get out of bed. I mean, I remember, you know, the, the, the kids took it the hardest. I remember one day I got a phone call from school and it was school principal asking me to come to the office and I actually thought that my daughter was receiving an award. <laughs> Unfortunately, she was suspended. <laughs> it wasn't funny at the time, but it just shows the impact. I mean, she was acting out, you know, her, her, everything, everything, everything that was stable in her life became unstable. And so you can imagine and imagine what it was like for my husband. He's a neurosurgeon and here he is with a wife with a brain tumour. He was in total free fall. I think it took him seven years to learn how to smile again. It was really, really crappy. However, wonderful things happened too. So we reconnected with old friends. My old roommate from when I used to live in Canada 20 years earlier reached out and came to visit. My husband took time off work, first time ever. We were supported by an entire community. And 
you know, on occasion I was slightly suspicious that one child in particular got better school grades than she probably deserved. I guess I think the children found lots of aspects of my treatment quite confronting. So they thought they might want to come to chemotherapy, but they didn't like that at all. It was awful seeing me in that position of being so sick. But they still needed information, so they always wanted to know when the next scan was coming up so that they could read the climate in the household. So it was a one day at a time roller coaster ride. And have you had treatment since then, on and off, essentially? Have you had larger breaks then, or have you had any breaks? No, none. None at all? Every three weeks for the last 14 years. Holy dooly. Wow. That's incredible. What they are doing must be doing the right thing. Yes. 100%. Yes. So that's just, I guess, the only option? I think every now and then... I just want to throw my toys out of the pram because people go, oh, Karen, you know, we know why you've survived. It's because you're so positive. No, I'm not. I hate that. Mm. I'm not. I'm cranky and I'm, I'm competitive with cancer. It's not going to win. Mm. And, but then sometimes I just want to be defined, don't want to be defined by it either and I, don't, I get sick of being a patient. And every now and then I just say, I can't do this any longer. And my husband gets so upset and begs me to keep going. The children are the same. And, you know, I sort of also feel a little bit of responsibility for being the lab rat. It is a privilege. Survival is a privilege. And so if I'm going to be a trailblazer, I'm going to just stick with it. Be the best lab rat. That you can possibly be. Totally. And by that, I, I have no doubt that you are. Look at you <laughs> bloody go. <laughs> oh, no. I cause a lot of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> How has your mental health been? I know that's a very personal question, but obviously you just touched on it then in terms of sometimes wanting to throw the toys out of the pram. Do you know that's a really good question, Jackie? And it's really interesting because when I was told I only had 12 months to live, I've got a lot of good girlfriends in the medical industry, and one of them is an anaesthetist. And she came up to me and she said to me, Karen, we really love you, but we don't know how to help you die. And so she arranged for me to go and see a psychiatrist. And I'm an information gatherer, so I'm really happy to, to go with any suggestions. You know, I've, I, I'll pers- there, there won't be any stone I won't turn trying to stay robust, stay well, you know, be a good mother, partner, worker, whatever. Anyway, so I went to this incredible psychiatrist and she said to me, well, it's lovely to meet you. What are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm supposed to die and I don't know how to do that. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting. And she said to me, okay, today we're going to talk about dying. We're going to talk all about dying. And then we're never going to talk about dying again. We're going to talk about living. And so talking about dying was quite interesting. So because lots of really random things bothered me, like... Who is going to pick my kids' grade 12 formal dress? Oh, crap, I forgot to get Harry christened. I, so she made me plan my funeral. So I, I organised a whole lot of photos, which I airbrushed so that I look really hot. Mm-hmm. And my bridesmaids look practically decades older than me and old hags look fabulous in these photos. I wrote letters to my children. I, I found out something about first love so I was really worried about my husband being lonely and so I wrote a list of second wives potential lists <laughs> potential second wives for my husband and but but 
which was hard to do. But she said to me, you know, the first love is always your first love. Any other love is going to be a different love. So if your husband was ever to remarry, it, it won't be the same love that he had for you, which was terribly comforting. And so I wrote my list of second wives and then I had to write a list to all of my girlfriends to say, I don't care whether he marries somebody 30 years younger, you bitches better be nice to her because that's who he's chosen and she's gonna keep him happy. So, you know, talking about dying was a really interesting exercise. And then she taught me a really, really clever trick about cancer. She taught me to visualize cancer as something that I could put in a box. And it's a box that I wouldn't be remotely interested in opening. So for me, my box is this very ordinary cardboard box that has 1977 tax receipts written across the front. It's got an inch of dust on the top and I shove that sucker in there because who's going to look at their tax receipts from 1977? No one. Well, not you. You weren't even born then. <laughs> and so for me, I was really able to compartmentalise cancer. It sits in a box way on the periphery and I'm not interested in giving it the time of day. And so that's why I've been able to maintain some sort of psychological robustness. But what was really helpful was this psychiatrist taught me about living. And so she, she taught me these amazing immune boosting visualization skills. She taught me to, to call my immune system a color, which for me was lime green. Coincidentally, apparently the color of healing. And I would visualize this, this color surging through my body. She taught me a lot about mindfulness. She taught me a lot about breathing, which was really helpful when I was in, you know, having stereotactic brain radiation treatment. And then she gave me this absolute gift. And she said to me, why haven't you planned your breast reconstruction? Okay, Karen, you've, you've had all these operations. You've had brain tumors taken out, spine tumors. You've had a bilateral mastectomy. You know, where's your reconstruction? And I said, well, cause like I'm supposed to die. So why would I bother? And she said to me, I'm gonna make a deal with you. As part of living, if you survive to 12 months, I want you to promise that you'll book in a breast reconstruction. And so I did. And I would probably, without her, have never given myself permission to, to think about living. And so we had this lovely, you know, we had about four sessions and she said to me, you know, it's been lovely knowing you. Let's meet for coffee sometime, but you don't need me anymore. I've given you your toolkit. So again, it, it was, you know, just, I just had this lovely professional in my life that gave me what I needed to, at the time. And really, I might have checked in on her one and, once or twice over the last 14 years, but having that ability to put cancer where it belongs, which is definitely not in front of me, you know, goes a long way to moving forward and just living and aging. Insane that you met a woman who could provide you with those skills within four sessions. Like that's unreal. The amount of people that see psychs or psychiatrists or what have you and seek professional help for years and years and years and try and find some form of connection. And then you came across this woman. Was she, did she have experience with cancer patients before? I think she was what I believe is called like a tertiary psychiatrist. So she takes referrals from other psychiatrists. So I think she has experience in just lots of hard stuff. Mm -hmm. And do you know, Jackie, something else extraordinary happened to me. And it's all about the universe just delivering at the time when we need it. 
I was being rolled into surgery for my brain tumour operation. And there were lots of things I was worrying about at the time. I was worrying about whether I'd survive. I was really worried about whether I'd be the same person when I came out of the surgery as when I went into the operation. And as I was being for surgery, a card arrived from a, from a girlfriend that I hadn't seen for a little while. And it was that wonderful quote from Albert Camus, and I'm not sure if you know this, but it's a quote that goes a little bit like this. In the midst of winter, I found there was within me an invincible summer. And so for me, recovering was about finding my invincible summer. I knew it was there somewhere. And so I think that was a message about strength and persistence. And I love that word invincible because, you know, that became part of my toolkit. 100%. And I think, yeah, the toolkit that this lady set you up with, like obviously the resilience comes from deep within because if somebody sets you up over four sessions like that, you knew that you had that within you. It was just a matter of practicing that every day and not giving up, which is incredible in itself. Because many people would do that, but the fact that you've been doing this the last 14 years is and such a testament to you, who you are and who your children are and who your family are, and it's incredible. Um, Jackie, I had a lot to live for, and remember mm. I had three of probably the naughtiest humans on the planet to raise, and I really, someone... just, I just really <laughs> couldn't... I really couldn't outsource that. Mm. You had to <laughs> do it. They needed me. <laughs> and look at them now, still naughty. Still <laughs> naughty. Still, still suspended. Still suspended. <laughs> During this time, over the years, have you had anything that you've turned to as a coping mechanism? I think as a coping mechanism, I think, like I've said before, I'm an information gatherer. So for me, coping was about upskilling. It was about learning how to meditate. It was about learning how to eat well. It was about organic gardening, free range chickens. You know, we, we actually ended up with a chicken coop in our backyard in the middle of the Brisbane CBD. And, and I think, so yeah, I've done everything. I've gone to retreats. I've cried and screamed, I am definitely not perfect. I've got plenty of flaws and I, you know, I think that I'm not done yet with, with learning how to cope with the bad days. But, you know, I think that the fact that I've outlived a prognosis means I re I've already made adjustments, you know. I already live a way more beautiful life you know my life is full we don't sweat really the small stuff I mean honestly even teaching when I was teaching my children to drive you know I'd teach them about perspective and I'd say to the kids you know what stop riding on the tail of that poor old man in front of us because he might be trying to get to ICU because his loved one is in intensive care mm -hmm. or that old lady might be driving her daughter's three-tier wedding cake to the wedding. There was always a reason for someone else, else's behaviour. So I think I'm, I've adjusted to... I'm, I'm a much nicer person. <laughs> because life's put you through the ringer to some extent, which I understand. You can't... I often can't really put words to it. 
like you have just worded that very nicely perspective and in some ways I am personally grateful that I went through cancer of some sort because I've come out a totally different person with a totally different outlook and I'm grateful for that because without it I'd still be a stuck up little turd like seriously well I don't know who I'd be I don't I, I wouldn't have it any other way I'm glad that it has happened because you walk a mile in other people's shoes you see the world in a different light obviously you have your shitty days but most times you're grateful still to be here and I'm sure you feel the exact same oh absolutely Jackie and in fact it's really interesting now having been a patient for so long and totally understanding perspective I we I've changed the way we work in our office for example we don't have phones on our front desk anymore because I hated that experience of walking into a doctor's office and having someone ignoring me or on the phone or looking at a computer. So where I work, the patient walks into the room and they are the, the most, the most important person is the person that's in front of you. And so, you know, it's really great to validate how someone's feeling or, you know, I think I do a lot of lectures on patient perspectives to health professionals. And it's really important to be able to say to people things like never underestimate the powerful impact of your kindness on on patients and kindness goes a long way you know i remember day one ground zero when i was admitted to hospital for a biopsy we didn't know what we were dealing with but we knew that it was breast cancer because we could see tumors on the scan and we could see lymph node, node involvement so i knew that it, it had most likely spread and it was two o'clock in the morning and I was crying and this gorgeous nurse came into the room and he said to me, what can I do to help you? What's bothering you the most? And I just said to him, and you know this Jack, I don't know how to do no hair. I've just read this brochure about how I'm gonna lose all my hair. How do I do no hair? And the next day he came to his shift with a whole bag full of scarves. And sure enough, two o'clock in the morning the next day and I was crying, here we were laughing because we were turning that moment into a scarf rehearsal. And I'll never forget that kindness 14 years ago. And it's a little bit like when I went to intensive care after I had my brain tumour operation. I had a young graduate nurse with not, no life experience. You know, how intimidating being in intensive care with this lady who'd had a brain tumour and was crying and was waiting for the pathology results. She just squeezed my hand just a little non-verbal validation of just how crappy I was feeling and that moment spoke volumes for me and so I like to talk to healthcare workers about how powerful their role is in our healing process you know we're not a diagnosis we're a person I'm not don't label me as don't don't label me as as difficult I'm scared don't see my partner as angry or or complicated he's terrified you know just those little changes of perspective that really just is a life lesson to be honest mm -hmm. but do you ever like I'm sure you've had these thoughts over the years but have you ever kind of questioned like why me or why has this happened to myself or my family no no I think it's probably because I've worked in hospitals for nearly 40 years yeah. and so I'm pretty comfortable with statistics mm -hmm. and I've seen a lot of sadness so in a way I'm one of the lucky ones 
You know, I got the cancer that can be managed. You know, I had state of the access to state of the art technology and surgical techniques and trial drugs. So I never did go down that path. Doesn't mean I wasn't cranky and angry. And I see that, you know, I love one of your questions about advice for fam and loved ones that could make people's cancer journeys a little easier. And Jackie, the, the simple answer to that is validation. Validate how I'm feeling. Tell me this sucks because it does. Don't thrust your belief system onto me. Don't, my favorite, I bet you had this one too. Don't tell me that I could just as easily wake up in the morning and get hit by a bus. Yeah. Like there's no buses in my bedroom. Don't, don't tell me I could just as easily get hit by a bus. That's just the crappiest response. If you don't know what to say, just validate how somebody's feeling. I mean, don't tell me, again, like I said before, that the reason why I'm still here is because I'm so positive. I'm not cranky, got reasons to still be here. Positivity is not one of them. It's a little bit helpful in, in the coping, in coping strategies, but it's not a cure, it's not effective. You're, you're allowed to be angry and you're allowed to grieve and you're allowed to throw the toys out of the pram every now and then. I think probably the other thing that's really important is don't tell me that I'm better off than other people. So, you know, one day I was waiting for some pathology results and I was crying. And the nurse, a nurse said to me, oh, yeah, you know what though, but you're better off than that girl in the room beside you because she's going to be dead in two weeks. She had to get married yesterday because she's going to be dead. Now, I don't ever want to dilute what the significance of what's happening in that room beside me, but I don't need guilt thrust onto what I'm navigating at this point in time too. That comparison is never helpful because what's happening to me is deeply personal. And again, back to the default, it sucks. And I think the most important advice I can give families and loved ones wanting to help a patient is please don't forget about our partners. My husband was so busy supporting me. Actually, I had plenty of support. I had a kick-ass group of girlfriends, I had a whole suburb cooking for me. He's a bloke that works a 60-hour week. He kind of needed some guy pals and thankfully there were enough to drag him reluctantly to curry nights and, and he really, really needed that boy time mm -hmm. or girl time. You know, your partners need just as much support as the person going through the experience. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have a yeah a few similar stories in regard to some doctors, not naming names, telling yeah. me that, yeah, I could walk out in front of a bus rather than worry about getting cancer again kind of thing, which I think is pretty ridiculous. You know, a lady said that to me. So I, I was told I had a year to live and I had a PET scan booked for exactly 12 months after my date of prognosis. So the day I was due to expire. And I went to have the PET scan and the, the nurse looking after me, she said to me, how are we today? And I said, actually, I'm a little bit frightened. Oh, why is that? I'm sorry about the patronising voice, but it's just exactly how it played out. And you can all, your listeners will get the picture because we all know those people in the health industry. And, and, I, and I said, well, I'm really scared because I was supposed to live for 12 months and today's 12 months and I'm really frightened that you're going to find something else. And she said, oh, well, you could just as easily 
wake up and get hit by a bus and I, I that really knocked me and then I persisted and I said I'm really scared you're going to find something and I'm really scared that we've just spent a hundred thousand dollars on trial drugs I'm really scared that it hasn't worked and that I've wasted you know our, our family's money and all for nothing and she said oh well it's like I said to my husband when I go shopping for shoes it's only money and I love teaching you know I teach a lot of medical admin techniques and 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 <laughs> that's my favorite example on what not to do it's not hard hello mrs. Campbell I'm really sorry we've got to do this today how can I make it easy for you what can I do what's bothering you the most and what can I change just to help it's not rocket science it's all about validation yeah 100% and I think that's that's a common question that I've asked in these episodes and we all have a similar roundabout way of saying validation but also just don't be like be considerate maybe think about what you're saying before you ask questions yeah. but you know Jax it's like sitting at chemo you would have been there watching a woman whose English is second language trying to explain to the secretary that she needed a morning appointment because the last bus back to Ipswich from the hospital was at 2.30 and someone's looking, trying to book an appointment for four o'clock. Mm. And I've had to just, la- I have launched across a counter and said, it's not a nail barn. This is not a nail barn, it's yeah. chemotherapy. Mm. Give her a morning appointment, ring your list, find somebody that you can change. Yeah. You, there is always a solution. Always a solution. Yeah. No, so I just I basically went from crap diagnosis to crap diagnosis to crap diagnosis to, oh crap, you're still here. Yeah. Okay. So I guess you can call it remission, mm-hmm. because I think it's just a funny word. Remission kind of makes me feel like it's still hanging around there, waiting to reveal its ugly face. So I don't want to label it like that. I just. Yeah, fair enough. Which is interesting. You bring a really interesting point because. The other thing that's happened in terms of psychology is, and this came from a girlfriend of mine who's also a medical specialist, and she said to me one day, Karen, we've spent so many years waiting, talking about dying and trying to stop you from dying, that actually as a medical profession, we haven't actually concentrated on the aging process. So. I think we've got you on some pretty shitty drugs. We need to get them we need to get you off those drugs because we want you to have really good bones. Hang on a minute, let's think about the aging process. You know, I I hadn't had a pap smear for 15 years because I'd never really thought about it because I was always you know planning on not being old enough to need one. So now I've just found this amazing GP and it's all about growing old disgracefully. It's all about holy crap for the first time I've had to worry about blood cholesterol, Jackie. Yeah. <laughs> what? Oh my God, I'm going to be an old person? So what a privilege and, and a, what a great mental shift. Mm-hmm. And this is brand new. And in fact, I've just taken 12 weeks long service leave to do a health reset because I've never given myself permission to look forward and embrace that whole idea that I'm going to be an old lady. How are you feeling? What does that look like for you? Like, what are the next 12 weeks? What are you undergoing? What are you doing? Nothing much, mm-hmm. actually. Just stopping mm-hmm. and giving my, myself permission to watch Below Deck and other assorted 
crappy reality TV programs, to read all the book club books that I never read and pretended I'd read, you know, when I went to the dinners with my girlfriends. It's just a reset. And, and I think that I've put a little bit of extra pressure on myself because I shouldn't take my health for granted. And so this is my time to get it right. Cardiovascular fitness, which I've never considered before. You know, like I said, skin checks, you know, all those things that I just haven't got around to. So yeah, it's a little reset. And you know what? Nothing wrong with giving myself some time to cook me up some more bucket list items, Jackie. Absolutely. And you and I know a lot about bucket lists. <laughs> which I want to talk to you about. Because yeah, go on. we were discussing prior to recording this episode that you do have a lot of bucket list items. There have been a few hurdles in terms of the state of the world in the last few years. But could you explain to our listeners what happened the last time or one of the last times you participated Ah, in a bucket list item? Okay, (laughs) well, I tell you what, bucket lists are interesting. Bucket lists are, they're, they're all about, for me, my bucket lists were about sharing a little bit about myself with my children so for example obviously when i was really sick we did that obligatory trip to disneyland because harry was only five and i really wanted him to associate his mother with the happiest place on earth (laughs) terribly selfish of me but i really wanted to do that i wanted to think about, I wanted him to think about his mother and align those wonderful memories. It was really important. And, and I lived in Canada for a year when I was you know, young and reckless and it was a great year and I just wanted my children to have that Canadian experience. So I took the girls to Lake Louise. So we went ice skating on the, on the lake, which was fabulous. But one of the more memorable bucket lists was when I took 40 friends to Colorado to go skiing and I was really excited because lots and lots of families came along and and my husband and I went ahead a couple of days early just to make sure everything was ready for the entourage and and we went skiing and my my (laughs) there was not much snow and I said to my husband I couldn't be bothered with this let's just go home and drink And as I said that, my ski got stuck in a tree root and I stacked it and had to have a total knee reconstruction. So down the hill in a body bag, rest of the bucket list holiday, two whole weeks in a wheelchair. And so unfortunately, my 15th operation was not cancer related, it was a knee reconstruction. So I semi-suck at bucket lists, but I'm still going to, you know, keep adding to it. Keep aiming high. I think I something that is very important to take away from that is that you can facilitate a 40-person holiday. That in itself is amazing, <laughs> regardless of or skiing the whole time. I think that's pretty special. I wanted to talk to you also, because we still have a few more questions. I wanted to talk to you about what it feels like to be told that you won't make it through a treatment and I guess life first death what that looks like for you I know we've touched on it but more or less is it something that you think about on a day-to-day basis not anymore but can you imagine it's something that you never expect someone to tell you that you've got a year to live you know what's really interesting Jackie is that because my husband is a neurosurgeon and like I told you it took him seven years to smile he 
said to me many years later, I would never have given you that long. So, you know, can you imagine he, he had that additional pressure of, of knowing that, you know, maybe wouldn't even have that 12 months to live. And so I, I just, you know, made lots of mistakes. Like I was really, you know, I, I remember a day where I was trying to tell my oldest daughter, Maddie, who was 15 at the time, that she should marry someone just like a father. Can you imagine telling a 15 year old just to, you know, see that old guy over there? Pick someone like him. <laughs> you know, I tried to cram everything that I, everything I wanted to teach my children in a lifetime into a, a four week period. I, I, I really made some terrible choices. I thought what was important at that time was taking my children on a spiritual spiritual journey in Central Australia. All I really, I was so sick, all I really should have done was just go to bed mm. and accept it. I fought it and I think that I, I, I don't think there's an answer for what that moment feels like. It's, it's a slow motion, it's a, an, an out of body experience, it's a free fall, it's every visceral experience that your body can slam dunk you in one hit and uh, I, I don't, I, ca I can't think of another life ex situation that aligns to that moment, Jackie. Mm -hmm. Say so that might be your plan. Yeah. But that's not my plan. Not Karen Campbell's <laughs> plan. <laughs> I think you don't know what you don't know. And I think that if I was going to look a young Karen Campbell in the face today, 14 years later, it's a mixed bag. I, I feel so sorry for her knowing what she's about to go through. I'm a little bit proud of how she's navigated it. But I just want to tell her to trust her team or find a team she can trust and make sure she uses her voice. You know, I think that that is the most important advice I can give anybody going through what I've gone through and what you've gone through. Speak up, ask questions. If you're not happy, tell them. If you want more explanations, ask for it. You know, I remember one day when I'd moved to a new facility and someone was accessing my port to give me some IV drugs and there were no curtains in any of the booths. And so I was topless, feeling very vulnerable. And there were six, there were two patients, each with two family members facing me. And I felt really vulnerable and I didn't feel comfortable about that. And I spoke up and, and that facility then changed their policy and added curtains to all of their rooms. Mm. You know, just little things like that. It takes a long time to find your voice though, because you're too busy being grateful and, and, and just, just accepting, you know, the, the next appointment or the next plan. And, and I think, that, you know, you're part of your treatment team, to be honest. So finding your voice is really important, but, but finding a team you can trust is just as important. And if you want a second opinion, get a second opinion. If you want a fourth opinion, get a fourth opinion because you're the one that has to have the faith in your team. Mm -hmm. have, have you been with somewhat of the same people for the journey or has it changed rapidly over the last 14 years? I'm lucky because I've been in the industry. So I, I know 
who my A-listers are. I, my original oncologist went into research, so I had to develop a rapport with someone else. Poor bugger who got stuck with me. I'm so complicated. And I think for me, because I've gone from one operation to the next, I've needed a different specialist each time. So I guess I've basically exhausted. I think I've had everybody except, everyone in my life except an obstetrician. <laughs> So, I, you know, next. So, so, I, I think, so I've accumulated a team. I haven't changed tack. A good team. That's some good advice. And I think my favourite part of the advice that you just gave is the second, third, fourth, fifth opinion, whatever makes you feel, especially on top of things. Let's talk about the most positive moment or positive things that have come from having cancer. Okay. If you're talking about the most positive moment, that's easy. So it was time when I'd had the vertebrectomy, so where that whole vertebra had been removed and I had six months of rehab. And, and at that stage, I was very unwell and my father-in-law had gifted me his mustard yellow vinyl Jason recliner. So I'm painting a picture, Jackie. Mm -hmm. and right up my, my alley. <laughs> That's what I slept in. I, 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 you know, I was in a lot of pain. I couldn't really move around much. I, you know, I didn't have any treat. I had a lot of treatment, so I didn't have any hair at the time. And, and, and Harry was five. And, and I used to catch him with my scarf on sitting in that chair because that was him playing mummy. So for Harry, mummy was this lady who was in that chair. And, and he was at... He must have been in prep or grade one. And his teacher rang me one day around that time. And she said to me, Karen, I don't want to upset you, but I have to tell you something that happened at school today. And she said, I was reading a book called What Makes Me Happy. And she said, I went around the class and I asked each one of the five-year-olds what made them happy. And she said it was really predictable. It was, you know, it was birthdays or it was Lego or it was Batman or it was, you know, a Bratz doll, you know, whatever was the thing at the time. And she said, and I got to little Harry Campbell and he said, what makes me happy is when my mummy gets better and her hair grows back. And she said, the reason why I want to tell you this is because some people spend their whole lives seeking out happiness, finding out what makes them happy. But your little boy worked that out when he was five. Health yeah. and family and love. That's really beautiful. How are you? I know. That's so sweet. <laughs> and it makes me cry every time. And I went to bed. I cried for three days, obviously. <laughs> but there was a moment where I have grown a little boy who has turned into quite the Neanderthal. But I know that he is highly emotionally intelligent. So no one's lives in our family will ever be the same. Perspective goes a long way. Oh, guys, that's so beautiful. Harry. <laughs> wow. It's pretty funny, that, isn't it? Kids. And, like, being... Like, I, I wonder if they would have had any idea what he was talking about at all. Yeah. The other children, no clue think about it Beth was in grade seven and she thought you could catch cancer off somebody so absolutely in fact it's really interesting Harry's life actually got better at the time mm -hmm. <laughs> I was really lucky Jackie and you know that's another bit of advice for you know other people that might have had a recent diagnosis is to check all your insurance policies because I had a trauma and 
I had a trauma insurance policy that I didn't know about. And so I was really lucky because I got a trauma insurance payout, which basically covered my trial drugs, but it also covered a night nanny. So I had this gorgeous lady that came to the house at five o'clock in the afternoon till seven at night. And she just came along and she cooked dinners, got school lunches ready, and she played with Harry. And so Harry actually had this epic life because our house was full of grandmas and relatives, really good food, way better than mine. Yeah. Lots <laughs> of good food. And, and this really nice lady that played board games from five till seven. So his life actually improved slightly. But yeah, so anyway, I, I think that, you know, I'm still, I still carry a lot of guilt for what cancer enforced on my little family. But the flip side of it is they don't take their health for granted. And everybody in the Campbell clan, you know, we say we love you. We say I love you so much more. We go on great holidays. We scoop each other up. Mm -hmm. And you know what? We're much better drivers in traffic. We give everybody a margin. Yeah. <laughs> Even Beth. <laughs> Even Beth. I love that quote. Do you love that quote? In the midst of, some, of winter, I found there was within me an invincible summer. And it was all winter. You know, it was shit house. And then I'm going, hang on a minute, I've got a summer. There's yeah. a summer in there. It's okay. It's actually, have you read Phosphorescence? No. Go get Phosphorescence. Mm -hmm. It's a chapter. It's such a beautiful quote. The extended quote is absolutely divine. But Adele Field gave that to me and I use it as a bookmark for every book I read. Because believe me, you know I'm not perfect. I get shitty. I need to be reminded about it. And so I just pull that bookmark out and there it is, my little reset. There is an invincible summer in here and no one's fucking with that. Yeah. In there, baby. Yeah. <laughs> Karen, I want to ask you, this is a bit off topic. I want to know your thoughts on, I don't know why this has been getting under my skin, but I'll often, like if I ask people how their day is going and when people say, never a bad day, always great. I get really shitty about it for some reason. I don't lose sleep over it, but I'm like, what do you mean? Like, don't you ever wake up and have a crap day and want to <laughs> not get out of bed. It's so, that's so funny. You're so funny. Actually, I have the opposite experience because I've had like 50,000 operations and there's, I, you know, often people say to me things like, oh, how's, how's your back? And I think, oh, isn't that nice? I wonder why they're asking me that for. I've forgotten it. I think I'm so good at just sticking it in that 1977 tax receipts box. Mm -hmm. That it, it, I don't that that I don't get to poke that bear very often. Yeah. So I and again, I just think that lots of time people just don't know what to say. Mm -hmm. But I'll give them that margin. Uh, on the other hand, you know, like I don't want to be that whinger either. And in fact, sometimes I actually just don't ever tell the story because sometimes I'm so damn sick of it and I mean it sometimes I just have a nap when I think about it <laughs> yeah no fair enough like if someone like I've got this lovely new GP because she's doing a little health set with me and she said tell me a story and I said oh have a nap while I'm telling you because <laughs> I'm going to yeah and it's a big one <laughs> it's a big story and I can fully understand that it's it I can only imagine how well, it just belongs to somebody a long time ago, Jackie, the one that's growing old disgracefully. And do you know what? I think that's the key to me now 
there is something unburdening about the permission to grow old. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful. I feel free and light and I feel just like everybody else. And you're being an absolute queen (laughs) in the best way. Yeah, most of the time. I want to ask you a few more questions before we wrap things up. But I know you already do a lot for people within the medical world, but is there anything that you're currently doing or that you would like to do to help people affected by cancer? Well, I feel like I have totally flipped our practice. So when I said to you, for example, a simple solution is to just get rid of the phones off the front desk so that people, when they, are, you know, when they come into an appointment, they are treated like royalty. I've got now, at work, we've got a patient management hub. So if you need an X-ray or a referral to somebody else or accommodation or you know, any information, we just come and sit in my glass cube and don't leave until we've got you sorted. I don't want people walking out with a post-it note, not, not, sure, sure, not knowing what to you know, do next. For me at work now, the answer is yes. What can I do to help you? You can ask me the same question 400 times. I'll answer it just as happily on the 401st time. So I think that, you know, in terms of the surgeons, I, I feel like I can just tweak them to understand a patient perspective as well. And, you know, a good example is my husband, you know, he's a neurosurgeon, he's a busy boy, operates at a very tertiary level. But he had a patient who hurt her, hurt her back and, and she needed a little spine operation and she just had given birth to a baby and she was having trouble breastfeeding. And I heard him on the phone op- organizing a lactation consultant for her. And I'm thinking, what planet is there that a neurosurgeon organizes a lactation consultant? Holistic. So I've got my team now to look at the whole person and I feel like that is a big victory. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I feel like changing the way we work is my way of impacting. I work on, I volunteer on a patient experience or a consumer engagement committee at the hospital where we can really impact very significantly because that committee reports directly to all of the executives. So it's a great way of getting straight to the top. But I think my favorite, my favorite way that I can help someone else is by being that lab rat because I'm that person that defied the odds. I'm that person you want to hear about. And so I often get emails from people saying, are you that lady that was told she had 12 months to live? And can you just, what, 14 years? Mm -hmm. Yes, I am. And I'm really happy to tell you my story because, you know, hope is really important as well. And I'm not talking about false hope but hope is really important. So I'm that lab rat and I'm really happy to provide hope. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. If you could give, I know you've given some advice, but if you could give any, I guess, advice to somebody who may be about to embark on the journey that you once began, what would that be? Not younger Karen, but a complete stranger. Say yes yes to lots of help say no to the things you don't want to do acquire knowledge find out what you need in your particular toolkit and go get it love hard get that bucket list happening ask the questions 
find your voice, trust your team. That's it, girlfriend. I mean it, say no, say yes. I should have said fuck off more often. Like I mean it, I should have said fuck off more often. Yeah. Actually there was this one moment. That should be the title of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs>